So a lot of you know this story, well, this little bit of the story, that I think it was 11 years ago, Becca and I moved out here from Chicago, and the idea we had was to plant a church or do a startup congregation in West Philadelphia. And those first few years were crazy. I mean, I don't know if you've, some of you were here then, but it's intense, There's a lot of time and energy that goes into so many things because basically you're starting with scratch. You're trying to gather people. You're trying to cast vision. But probably the biggest thing that's happening during those times is you're connecting with people. You're building relationships. I know for Becca and I, it seemed like, it probably wasn't like this, like five nights a week we had people in our home. We're eating together. We're playing games. I learned that sometimes when you're playing a game, the most important thing actually isn't winning. (laughs) Which was a revelation to me when we were trying to get to know people and thinking, hey, they might become a part of our church. And Becca would be like, Brad, you know, uh, uh, when we're playing these games, you want the people uh, afterwards to think that you, I don't know, like them. So you might want to tone it down, and if they don't get the rules exactly right, you know, maybe there's a higher value here. And I was like, higher than winning? What? (laughs) They need to learn that life is hard, and sometimes you can't win. (laughs) There are winners and losers. No. The message of the church has changed over the years. Um, So, but it's such an intense relational time. Um, And I got to be honest, so much of it was hard work, but so much of it was fun. Um, If you were here then, you can probably relate to this. I know Becca would agree with me that we made in those first three years like some lifelong friends. And sometimes in those intense situations, you bond even more and more quickly. We made some really good friends. And then what happened, for some reason, in May of the third year, I'm going to exaggerate, they all moved. Did they all move no. Do we still, you know, some of you were here then. You're our friends. You didn't move. <laughs> but it can feel like sometimes everybody moved. I remember quite literally three-fifths of our church council moved. A Sunday morning worship leader, the leaders of our small group ministry all moved. Forty percent of our church moved in the period of a month. Can you imagine? And it's hard when you're trying to build something. You think, oh, I feel like we were just getting somewhere. And sometimes it sort of feels like, but besides like what you're trying to do with your life and this mission you have, they were our friends. And there was this one time where Beck and I were both getting ready. I remember, and it's really close quarters. We expanded our bathroom because here's a little TMI. It was so small that when you're sitting, you, I couldn't sit straight forward on the toilet. I had to sit at an angle because my knees would hit the... Anyway, it was a small bathroom. So we're in close quarters, um, and I remember all of a sudden, and this doesn't happen to me very often, I just started, I just started crying. And I said to Becca, I was like, exaggerating, of course, and this is how it felt, not what was literally true. I said, all of our friends have moved away. What are we going to do? You know, in society today, people move. Have you noticed this? You know, in 1932, the University of Pennsylvania did a study. 
they examined 5,000 consecutive marriage licenses that were filed in the city of Philadelphia. And here's what they found. One-third of all the people who got married in 1932 lived within a five-block radius of each other in Philadelphia. One out of every six lived on the same block. One out of eight lived in the same building. Now, how does that compare with your experience? Think about the last wedding you went to. Did those lovely people grow up in the same neighborhood? How about the wedding before that? Or the one before that? Or think about it this way. Think about the neighborhood you grew up in. Could you see yourself marrying someone from the old block? <laughs> you know, maybe for you the answer is yes. You know, and, and you know, I have a couple of friends who were child, or not childhood sweethearts, high school sweethearts, and they've been married for decades, and it worked for them. But if I were to wager a guess, and I'm not sure that's how that phrase works, I suspect that for many of us, the examples of this are really small. People today move so much more. They move for school. They move for jobs. And who we marry today is kind of a sign of how much people move and how transient our society is. And I don't think that's a bad thing, actually. I just think we need to notice. I don't think that our society is more transient than ever necessarily has to be a bad thing at all. I grew up in small-town Illinois. I moved to a large city of Chicago, and that's where I met Becca. I think that was a good thing. I'm okay with that. I moved there to go to school. But I do think that the transiency of our society presents unique challenges that are different from the way things used to be. You know, the last couple months until I had a baby, and I haven't done it since, um, I was just, I was having a lot of conversations with people, informal interviews, um, because I'm curious to know how people are connecting spiritually, how they're connecting to community, how they're connecting to purpose in their life. And you can imagine that might be interesting to me, but even as I'm thinking about how we do things as a church, I want to have conversations with people and hear where people are really coming from. And so um, I had 11 conversations in a row where each person specifically said they didn't feel connected to anyone let alone a community. Now, a few of them said, maybe I'm connected uh, to my boyfriend, spouse, partner, whatever. But beyond that, I don't have any connected relationships. 11 people in a row. Huh. Now, I talked, and that's really interesting to me. So I started to ask questions. So why, why is it you feel like it's difficult for you to connect? Some people said, time, I'm just so busy. Some people said, I just want community to appear around me. I was like, well, okay, that's one approach. Another person said, well, I have some connections, but I don't have any depth. So she gave the example of being in a playgroup for her kids, and she liked the people there, but she said, we have absolutely no intimacy. But for each of these people, except for my friend who just wants community to appear around him, most of us, I think, are really trying at this. You know, one of the people I talked to, the one I just mentioned, 
Um, she goes online and she says, I feel very affirmed whenever I post something on, on Twitter or Tumblr and someone either retweets me or they respond. She says, then I feel connected. But she also says that it's fleeting. It's the same woman who said she has no relationships with intimacy in her life. I've been reading this book and it was talking about a study they did. I think this shows how people are trying to connect. Um, and they were studying relationships over time. It's where I got some of my information from earlier. And so they collected a focus group of people from a sort of the World War II era and then millennials. Got them in the same room and got them talking about relationships and how they found their partners and things like that. And then after they've been talking while well, they split them into groups, um, World War II over here, millennials over here, and said, let's take a 10-minute break. And then they watched to see what happened. So interesting thing, like the, the World War II generation uh, turned to each other and asked questions like, so where are you from? What are you doing? Got any kids? Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more. The millennial generation did something else. What do you, any predictions? They all pulled out their phones. Now, was it that they didn't want to connect with the people around them? No, they were connecting. They were tweeting. They were checking their email. They were texting friends. They were seeing what's going on and trying to connect with what's happening in the rest of the world. Everyone tries to connect. The ways change, but the desire to connect never does. And I wonder, actually, if somehow we're getting much better, and this is a great thing, at connecting to many, many, many more people. We practically have infinite possibilities for relationships in our lives based on which way we swipe on a phone app, right? We can connect, connect, connect. The old school way to realize this is all the friends we have on Facebook, right? We're connecting, connecting, connecting to more people than ever. So the reach is broader, and I think that's great. It's just the depth is elusive. Everyone tries to connect. One woman I spoke to said to me, I just need someone I can lean on. How do we get there? This series we're starting today, we're going to be looking at how we can connect to people today in a transient society so that we have the opportunity to experience a really connected life. So the, the title of this series, it's not on my page, so I hope I remember Sometimes I stumble over these things. But the title of our series is Commitment, Connection, and Building Relationships in a Transient World. How can we do that? How can we not just be broad, but be deep? Because it seems like everyone I'm talking to, 11 people in a row, with the exception of a few who said, but I don't need community, but I don't need relationships, want to get deeper, even if it just has to appear around us. So we're going to be looking at that, and I think this is going to be fun. Today we're going to talk about some foundational perspectives, but later we're going to talk about how to lean into those. We're going to talk about how to do bad relationships really well. We're going to talk about romance, talk a little bit about dating, talk a little bit about diversity and reconciliation. So I think this is going to be a hot series. And today we're going to talk about some ancient secrets that I think can help us with modern connection. And to do that, we're going to look at one passage, and surprise, 
We're going to look at Jesus. So here we go. Matthew 26, verses 37 to 38 to get us started. Really just verse 37, and we'll just pick up on this story as we move along. And this is talking about Jesus. It says, He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So this is the beginning of Matthew telling the story of a really significant part of the last night of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. They've done the Last Supper thing. Now they're off alone. They've gone up into um, this garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is bringing with him the people that have been the closest to him. Now, many of you probably know he had 12 people that were called the disciples who traveled with him everywhere. In that group, he had a smaller group of three people uh, that we see here, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And so he says, come with me. And they go off into this corner of the garden. And it says that he begins to be sorrowful and troubled. Now, the full context of the story is that Jesus is not surprised about what's about to happen. So it's been revealed to him by God that this is it. This is the last night before his betrayal, his beating, his death on a cross. Now, Jesus is the leader of this group, right? Got the 12 disciples. He's the leader of these three. Those are closest people to him. Now, when you're the leader of a movement, and you're in a crisis situation, and you know things are about to go bad, how are you supposed to behave? How are you supposed to behave? Stiff upper lip? Exude confidence? Total calm in the face of adversity? Laugh at adversity. Well, this is what Jesus does. In verse 38, then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Is that what a famous general would say to the troops before they go into battle? Is that what your favorite coach, I see a Duke fan over here, Coach K, says before the finals or the final four, all right, guys, my soul is troubled to the point of death. Now go get them. (laughs) Right? Is this what you expect a really true and awesome leader to say in the face of crisis? I feel like my emotions are falling apart like I could die right now. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, the point of death. What in the world is happening here? I got to be honest, like, on the eve, when we bought this building, and we were trying to raise money, I don't think there was a sermon where I said, guys... My soul is troubled to the point of death. But there were those moments where I thought this could all fall apart. 
I didn't preach that. My messages, I think, were more, we can do this. Have faith. The loaves and the fishes. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. What is Jesus doing here? Well, I, th- I think what Jesus is doing and what's difficult for us and perhaps symptomatic of why it's hard for us to connect deeply with people is that he's being vulnerable. He's talking about how he's feeling and it's not positive. And he does this more than you might think. There's a famous story about Jesus. One of his best friends dies, a guy named Lazarus. Maybe you know the story now, maybe you don't. Jesus is on his way to the funeral of one of his best friends. And along the way, he meets one of his fallen friend's sisters. And she says, oh, if you'd only been here. And it says in two words, Jesus wept. He wept. He bawled in front of everyone. Another time, he's entering Jerusalem. It's the first time in in years that he's been there. He's coming on a path where he can overlook the whole city. And he becomes overwhelmed with the pain that he sees in the lives of the people in the city. And it says he wept, cries out. After this, after everything happens, death and resurrection, there's this story where Jesus meets up with Peter again. Now, Peter is the one, if you don't know the story, that there's so many stories here, right? Peter denies that he even knows Jesus after he's arrested three times. And so Jesus has this encounter with Peter where there's a lot going on, and part of this is his opportunity to rebuild Peter, but he asks them this question, do you love me? Have you ever asked someone if they love you? That is a vulnerable question to ask. There's no guarantee of the answer. Even what Jesus does here, what he asks is this, stay here. Keep watch with me. He's asking for help, for support. He's looking for someone to lean on in his life. He's vulnerable. Do you love me? My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death with sorrow. Stay here with me. Guys, I need you. Keep watch with me. I need some help. Vulnerability is simply showing your true self. And the thing about showing your true self is it often looks like weakness, whether it is or not. But it's not. It's simply showing the real you as a human being. Jesus had feelings. He had needs. And he expressed those things to the people around him even as the leader of the whole thing. 
he allowed the people around him to see all of who he was. Maybe not the whole crowd all the time. So in this story, it's him and his three closest. But he was known. Maybe there's something to that. That's a difficult thing to do on your phone. Right? As great as our technology is and as much as it helps us, maybe we're losing a little bit of that or a lot of that. And doesn't it maybe just kind of make sense that if we want a certain depth in our relationships, we have to let people kind of know who we are? Well, let's see what happens in the rest of the story. Verse 39 says, Going a little further, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. And Jesus says this, Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? And he asked Peter, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to them, to his disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. So what happens? Jesus is vulnerable with the people around him. He opens himself up. He tells them how he's really feeling. He asks for help, and they completely blow it. There's absolutely no reciprocation. He has no one to lean on. They're all asleep, every single one of them. So what does Jesus do? He doubles down. He says, look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered to the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The rise, let us go means towards the betrayer. So if you know the story, and if not, we're filling in the blanks here. This is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. As he goes to the cross, he's going to the cross for the very people he's asked to stay and watch for him. Who faceplant, who completely let him down. As he goes to the cross, every one of them leaves him. Peter denies him three times, even though he's been warned by Jesus that it could happen. And he heads towards the betrayer. Every part of me would think, for you, ooh, I'm, I'm, if I'm rising and going, I'm going the other direction. Why am I sacrificing for you? You can't even stay awake for an hour when I need you the most. When my soul is troubled to the point of death, you fall asleep. You know, 
people are going to let you down. People are going to hurt you. And you know what? In my life, I've risen and I've gone the other way. I remember when I was 21, 22, um, I was leading this college ministry. And one of the things I thought would be really helpful is to start a men's group with some of the guys. I knew they were struggling with things. So I got a few guys together. And there's this one guy um, who was really caught in a pattern of addiction in his life, and I was trying to help him. So we would meet. I would invest hours, time into him. And then all of a sudden, he stopped showing up at the meetings. I thought, oh, that, that stinks. I really wish he was here. It's hard to have a men's group without men. And uh, where'd he go? So what I found out was it wasn't that he had, like, fallen off the wagon or something. It was just that he found a better men's group to go to. And he was going to that group that someone else was leading. So I was like, oh, that, what? So, all right, well, you know, whatever. So then, but when he gets in trouble, who does he come to? Me. That guy comes to me when he's in trouble, when he doesn't even have the decency to come to my men's group because it's, it's not cool enough, or at least not as cool as the other men's group. And so, but here comes to me, and now he wants me, all right, fine, whatever, well, tell me. So what happens? We're talking, we're talking. And then I realized halfway through the conversation, he's lying to me. And you know what I did? I ran the other way. I was like, I have had enough of this. I canceled the men's group. We didn't meet anymore. And I will never forget the body language that he displayed as he walked away from that conversation. I definitely didn't double down. You know, a few years later, I remember there was a friend of mine, and we had a long relationship together, and we worked on things, and a lot of it was good, but it was a little mixed, too. And I remember um, I had the opportunity uh, to attend his funeral. And it's funny, the perspective you can get at a place like that. I remember as people talked about him and remembered the great things about him, um, I had this experience. I'll clean it up a little bit for you, but this is the thought that came into my head. This is what I thought. I thought, oh, shoot. The literal words, I guess I probably shouldn't say, I said, oh, shoot. I really love that guy. And I didn't realize it until right now. And some, a flip switched in my heart. A new perspective was born. And I realized we don't always have a lot of friendships in our lives let alone good ones. And when we do, they're worth their weight in gold. They're worth fighting for. They're worth sacrifice, disappointment. And it's changed. You know, as a pastor, you know what's hard for me? When people move away, that's hard because they're my friends. 
When people decide they want to go to another church, that's so personal to me. And in some ways it probably should be, in some ways it probably shouldn't. But I've realized over the years as I've had good friends that I've worked with that have moved on because they feel like they're supposed to, I still want those friendships. Even though in that moment it hurts because they're worth their weight in gold, they're not that common. I don't feel proud about my 22-year-old experience. I wish I could forget the slumping shoulders as he walked away, and I wish I could do it different. But I don't have to keep living my life that way. Even when I'm disappointed. Jesus doubles down. What is this called? There's a word for this. It's called commitment. Commitment. What is that? Here's the definition I like. It's choosing personal sacrifice to follow through on something. You know, particularly as a young man, I would get excited about a lot of things and think that I was very committed. But I realized you never know whether you're committed until you have to choose. And what you sacrifice for is the thing you're committed to. And lots of times in my life, I've discovered I'm committed to being comfortable. I'm committed to this being easier. I'm committed to being safe. But commitment entails sacrifice. Commitment's hard for us, though. It's hard for us to choose a movie to watch. You had this experience? Let's say, uh, let's say for me it's like 8 o'clock because I have a baby now, so let's bump it up a little bit. Maybe for you it's like 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. You're sitting down with your boo or your friend or whatever. You know, for me it would be Becca, obviously. <laughs> and so we decide, hey, let's watch a movie. It's 8 o'clock. All right, cool. Well, what do you want to watch? I don't know. Let's pull up On Demand. Okay, what do we got there? Ooh, there's a good movie. Well, what do you think of that, Beck? Oh, Jude Law's in that. He's a kiss of death. Oh, yeah, okay. We'll stay away from that movie. <laughs> oh, there's an, another movie, uh, fill in the blank. I don't know, Transformers. <laughs> oh, right. Okay, so it's Transformers. <laughs> I was like, all right, well, I don't know. Well, why don't we watch it? Well, let's look it up on Rotten Tomatoes. Pull out our phone. Ten minutes of research. No, we don't want to do that. Let's do another movie. I pull up, let's do, all right, 10 more minutes of research. Oh, what did, what, did, uh, uh, what did the New York Times say about it? Oh, they didn't really like it that much. Let's move to the next one. Oh, that's a 75% fresh rating. Maybe we can get a little better than that. Oh, that's a, that's a total splat. 90 minutes pass. <laughs> Just can't make a stupid decision on a movie to watch. And we're like, it's 9.30. Kid's going to be up in the morning. So what do we do? We end up watching the last half hour of Chopped <laughs> and going to bed. We have so many options and so much information available to us. Sometimes the scariest thing is choosing. One of the women I talked to said, why aren't you engaged with some sort of community? Why don't you, you know, how you're having trouble connecting to people? 
And she said, well, if I was in a community, that would mean all, I couldn't, I would be losing all these other things that I could do. And she's right. Any commitment entails some sort of sacrifice. Even the most insignificant decisions we make. You make a choice, you lose something else. So when you bump up the stakes and you see the level of commitment from Jesus that in the face of his own rejection heads toward the cross, doubles down, that's crazy. How could he do that? Think about this. How could Jesus move towards suffering and sacrifice for people who have just and are continuing to reject him? I have a theory. I have a theory that's taken new light recently. And let me pitch this to you. I feel like Jesus had a really deep sense of his true self, of who he was. In Matthew chapter 3, there's a story. This is Jesus. He hasn't done anything fancy yet. Few people have even heard of him. He goes to be baptized. Comes up out of the water. And a voice comes from heaven that says this. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. To me, this is the definition of the true self. Experiencing the ownership, the love, and the pride of God. We need this. And not just so we can live through terrible relationships. I'm going to come back to that. I'll say, hey, here's the message today. You can have crappy relationships if you just know who you are. Go and have some bad relationships. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need this. And this, I think, is what, part of what gave Jesus the ability to double down and turn into the face of sacrifice for people who rejected him. We need this. I've got a newborn son, two months old. Sometimes I sit him down and he has no idea what I'm saying. But I look him in the eye and I say, Declan, you're my son. I love you. And I'm proud of you. Because I know he's going to need to know that. He doesn't know what the heck I'm saying probably. But I like to think on some level that's getting in there. Why is this important? I want to show you a quick diagram. I think this can show us at least what I think might be one set of reasons why we don't connect. You see this right here? Right in the middle, the first circle, that's your true self. That's who you are, right? Then what happens? Life happens. Things don't work out. You make mistakes. People make fun of you. You're judged. All kinds of stuff happens. That's shame encircling your true self. Now, when that happens, we feel like we have to protect who we are. And so we create 
this false self to cover over our shame, to say to the world, this is who I am. Does that make sense? And we spend a whole lot of energy trying to maintain the false self. Now, let me ask you, how deep a relationship do you think you can have with someone if this is what they see, the false self? Because the false self isn't your true self. It's not actually who you are. So if all I see is what's on the outside, and all we are, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, is a lot of people putting on our best face, a lot of people just posting the highlights of our lives, just a lot of people um, picking the best pictures. We're just bouncing off of each other and the images we put out. And so we're connecting to so many people by putting all of this out there. But we're not connecting with any depth because it's not us. It's the thing we've put on to, to hide the shame that we feel or to respond to the messages, the negative ones we receive. Does that make sense? So here's what I'd like to suggest could be helpful to kind of getting past this. It's more of a circle. And there's three things, vulnerability, commitment, and true self. Now, here's how I think this could work. So vulnerability, in the context of a committed relationship, means that you can be honest. That's a little bit, showing a little bit of who you really are. And the commitment means the other person won't leave. The other person will still accept you. The other person will double down. Right? No matter what that little piece of your true self is, they're not going anywhere. And maybe that person is more than one person. Maybe it's a couple people. Maybe it's a little bit of community. Now what happens then, as people double down with you, is that all of a sudden who you are, your true self, is affirmed because you're not rejected. Then as your true self is affirmed, it gives you just enough encouragement to share a little bit more of that, be vulnerable again, and then as people around you double down, stay with you, see how the circle works? Now here's the problem. And Jesus experienced this. What if it's, it's all messed up, right? And we're, what if people are all messed up, right? And so like the commitment thing is really difficult. Uh, and the vulnerability thing is really difficult too because when you're vulnerable, you don't get a lot of commitment back. Jesus didn't get any. And so then what that means is with the true self, you just want to bury it a little bit more because every time you're rejected and people aren't committed, you, that's more shame on top of you. So you reinforce the false self. And so it becomes a messed up circle. How do you break into this in a healthy way, so the circle becomes healthy. You know, anytime there's a circle, that's a tough thing. You can never get in because it's a circle. So how do you start in one place to get to the next? You, you track it with me? All right, here's the thing. If we could understand 
Let me suggest that if you understand, if I understand what happened the night that Jesus doubled down and went to the cross, that could be your way in. That what Jesus did was so amazing, so over the top, that it changed everything. What we see with Jesus on the cross is intense vulnerability. Stripped, beaten, hung out in front of everyone on a tree. It's hard to get more vulnerable than that. But it was that vulnerability that demonstrated his commitment to the very people who had rejected him. And by the very people, like Peter, James, John, his disciples, they're who they were, but they are also representative of humanity, of everyone. So his vulnerability demonstrates the commitment that he has and the value true self, that he sees in Peter and James and John and you. That's the new circle. And with that, it's not just that he did it. It's not just as a model. The whole story is that that event released the power of new creation into the universe. Short version of the big story, everything created good. (laughs) Corrupted by shame. Jesus releasing new creation into the world. So it's not just an image that communicates this to us. There's power to it. And we're talking about spirituality here. There's something released that changes things. It's not that you see, but that you experience. And so there's a way into this circle that can build health. So the image that Jesus gives, his vulnerability... Whoa, all right, go back to a second. His vulnerability, which proves his commitment, which affirms who you are, because he's committed to you, right? There's that image, and the power released allows us, if we experience that, to have just enough faith in Jesus and what he can do in the lives of people that will be just a little bit vulnerable. And that somehow his grace will be present in other people that they won't turn and run. But they'll actually double down. And then that process becomes affirming to you. You see, and then all of a sudden the circle becomes healthy. And you can, and, and depth is built. Because there's vulnerability and commitment in your relationships. And you're discovering more and more who you are. And it's okay to be that. Our way into the circle is the love of Jesus. 
Jesus is the center of everything. What happened on the cross was mind-blowing. So, all looks good in a diagram, right? How can we do this? How can we try to live this out? Here's some things I'm going to pitch to you, a couple of things to try, some places to start. The first would be to demonstrate commitment. What that means is you're going to have an opportunity. Now, let's take abusive situations out of the equation right now. I'm not saying run head into an abusive situation again and again and again. Let's put that to the side. Let's say this is not an abusive situation. But you're in a relationship with someone. You're going to have choices which way to run. And oftentimes it's going to feel more comfortable and easier to commit to your safety and your ease of life. But you can turn towards that person and double down with them. Be with them in whatever it is they're sharing or what's happening in their lives. So demonstrate commitment. But to do that, it takes other people. <laughs> so here's the best thing we've got going in our church as a way to facilitate this type of life. Not the cure-all for everything, but this is definitely the best thing that we've noticed over the years in our community, and that's a small group. First week in August, we're relaunching all of our small groups. We've got different types of groups with different types of people that meet all over the city. Find one. Do life with people. Hang in there and double down when it's not comfortable, when it seems easier to go the other way. Check them out. It's real heavy right now. Small groups are fun, don't get me wrong. But there are those moments when you get to know people, you can turn towards them or away from them. Invest in a small group. And the second thing is this, risk vulnerability. Risk it. Now, you don't have to start with your deepest, darkest sin you're afraid to tell anybody ever. So let me walk you through this. How could this look like? Let's say you're in a small group or you get to know somebody. Let's say you know someone in the church. I give you permission to just start talking about the things you see. Ah, you're a Phillies fan. You can see because they're wearing a Phillies shirt. I love the Phillies, blah, 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 blah. That's where you start. I'm not saying you dive in and start talking about uh, your girlfriend in high school who broke your heart or something. You know, just start with what you see. Then you can talk about maybe some personal information. So you have to ask a question about this. But you're not too deep. You're just saying, what do you do for a living? Tell me about your job. Why do you like it? And then you feel a little more comfortable. Then I would suggest a little bit more vulnerability. And that's start telling, open up about what's important to you, what you dream about. Dreams and desires. So you don't have to start with your dreams and your desires. I'm not trying to push you beyond what, where your relationship should be at that point. You've got to start somewhere. Talk about what you can see. Talk about personal information. But then at some point, talk about what you, really matters to you. Okay? And then step four, you're building trust. 
then you talk about your regrets, your losses, and your pains. So that's a little bit of a process, right? I'm not saying you skip to the fourth type of conversation. But if you don't start with the first, you won't get to the fourth. And if you start with the fourth, you might scare someone off. <laughs> and that's okay. All right, let's pray. God, I'm pretty convinced that 99%, if not 100% of people here, whether they want to admit it or not, really would like to be known and would like to have deep friends. And so I pray for grace. I pray that um, what you did on the cross would become more real for us, but not just in our heads and how we understand diagrams, but in the experience of that love of that vulnerability, of that commitment, speaking to who we are and how we see ourselves in a way that only you can. And God, as we continue in worship, would you send your Holy Spirit? Because talking about these things is fine, and it's good, and it's helpful. But experiencing you is where the rubber hits the road. That's what gives us the faith to take risks in our lives. That's what affirms us. So would you give us more of the Holy Spirit today? Amen.